everyone. This is Cindy Fan. I want to welcome you back to another episode of Who Beats. In this segment, we challenge you to solve dynastically difficult real-world cases alongside experienced clinicians. As always, I'm here with my partner, Dr. Zhang Huang. Hey, everybody. So, if you remember, on our last episode, we invited you to submit your diagnoses to us via the online case platform HumanDX, so that we could crowdsource a collective differential diagnosis. And we purposely chose a case in which the final diagnosis was kind of a questionable one, one that we could practice subjecting to scrutiny and to slightly subvert the concept of the case didactic. I think. Well, we're going to do things a little bit differently in this episode. For starters, we have already submitted this case to HumanDX a while ago, incognito, and so we already have a collective differential which we can analyze later. And this time, we've got a case with a definite answer, which we'll reveal at the end of this episode. So you're a hundred percent sure of the answer? As close as can be reasonably expected. I mean, nothing in medicine is a hundred percent, after all. Well, that's very meta. Without further ado, let's hear this case from our colleague, Dr. Marty Free. All right. Thanks for having me again, guys. So today we're going to talk about a 43-year-old man presenting with one week of diarrhea. Two weeks prior to presentation, the patient started developing dyspnea on exertion. His exercise tolerance went from unlimited to five to six blocks due to shortness of breath, also associated with two-pillow orthopnea. One week later, he developed profuse, watery, non-bloody diarrhea. He estimates he is having five to six bowel movements daily. There is no clear association with eating, and the diarrhea occurs at night as well. He's also noticed over this time period generalized fatigue, malaise, anorexia, and subjective weight loss, though we cannot quantify exactly how much. He believes he is urinating more frequently than usual, and that his urine appears darker and frothy. He also complains of occasional bilateral leg cramping. He has no significant past medical or surgical history, but does not follow regularly with doctors. He immigrated from China 10 years ago, lives alone in an apartment, and works part time at a restaurant. Although he has not been to work in the past week because of this illness, he is not sexually active. He does not take any prescription or over-the-counter medications, nor herbal supplements. He has a 10-pack year smoking history, but quit five years ago. He used to drink five to ten shots of hard liquor daily while in his 30s, but stopped drinking entirely three years ago. He denies any history of drug use. On arrival, the patient is febrile to 103 degrees Fahrenheit. Heart rate is 105. Blood pressure is 108 over 63. Breathing 16 breaths per minute, saturating 93% on room air. He is a thin Asian man resting quietly in bed, alert and anxious appearing. The sclera are icteric. The jugular venous pulsation is grossly elevated, visible at the earlobe. There is a systolic murmur audible at the upper sternal border. The heart rate is irregularly irregular. There are crackles audible at both lung bases. There is mild tenderness to palpation in the right upper quadrant, and there is no peripheral edema. On labs, we'll start with the CBC. He has a white blood cell count of 4.9,000 with a normal differential. His hemoglobin is 13.6, and platelets are 213. On the basic metabolic panel, he has a sodium of 140, potassium of 3.8, chloride of 110, bicarb is 20, BUN is 29, creatinine is 0.5, and glucose is 89. In terms of his LFTs, his AST is 39, ALT is 30, ALKFOS is 194, total bilirubin is 4.6, and direct bilirubin is 1.6. In other labs, his HIV is negative, lipase is 42, hemoglobin A1C is 5.9, ANA, AMA, 
ANCA and anti-KLM serologies are all negative. His CK is 78. Urinalysis shows trace protein negative for leukesterase nitrates or blood. He has a normal microscopy. Blood culture and urine culture results are all without growth. In terms of stool studies, he has a normal lactoferrin. He has a negative Clostridium difficile PCR. Stool culture shows no growth, and the stool examination for ova and parasites is negative. EKG shows atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. Chest x-ray shows an enlarged cardiac silhouette and prominent pulmonary vasculature with small bilateral pleural effusions. Right upper quadrant ultrasound shows a normal appearing liver with patent vasculature. Transthoracic echocardiogram shows a left ventricle that is mildly dilated, diffusely hypokinetic with a left ventricular ejection fraction of 30%. The right ventricle is also dilated and hypokinetic. Both atria are severely dilated. There is moderate tricuspid regurgitation. The pulmonary artery and inferior vena cava are severely dilated with an estimated right atrial pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury. There are no vegetation seen. So that is the extent of the information that you will hear about this case. And I just want to point out, Cindy, this is the second case of a young man with diarrhea that we've had on this show. I swear this isn't on purpose, but everything seems to be about fever, confusion, or diarrhea on hoofbeats. Well, that's part of the game we're playing with our listeners, isn't it? A common presentation does not equate to an easy case. Remember the phenomenon of cognitive ease? we're in a familiar situation, we tend to feel good about ourselves, and we rely more heavily on unconscious or intuitive thinking. Exactly. So if you see diarrhea and relax, you might be walking into a trap. So, what do you think? What would you have said and done? Take a moment to think it through. Zhang and I sat down with Dr. Catherine Constable, a hospitalist at NYU. Here is her initial reaction to this case. So I read the case, and then I guess the thing that stuck with me or that jumped out at me, obviously, he seems to be in heart failure. He's also in AFib. And so, you know, I started thinking about things that connect AFib and heart failure, kind of an interesting chicken or the egg problem in that, you know, it could be a tachymyopathy. He could be in AFib. And then he, you know, a couple of days later, he comes in in heart failure. But as I said, you know, it, it's, there's multiple organ systems affected here. And so I found it easier to connect a cardiomyopathy causing AFib and then connect the cardiomyopathy to something else, you know, causing a systemic kind of syndrome. So I, you know, to me, it seems like a primary issue in terms of what's going on with this guy's heart is a cardiomyopathy. And then, you know, due to his dilated atria, he ends up in AFib. So the next thing I moved on to is thinking about his liver. I mean, I guess the reason why I was also focusing so much on heart failure is because I felt that I could explain the LFT abnormalities in the setting of heart failure, hepatic congestion. In this case, the, the bile is elevated. His total bile was 4.6. Elevated bilirubin is actually the most common LFT abnormality with hepatic congestion found in 70% of cases. And then other LFTs are usually only mildly elevated. AST, ALT elevated only about a third of patients. And then the liver ultrasound was unremarkable. Not sure how much to make of that, but he's got a very dilated IVC, and that is consistent with right heart failure causing hepatic congestion. Now, recall that starting with the data and building this up into hypotheses is something called forward or data-driven reasoning, and something that we talked about a little bit in episode one. So here you see our discussant quickly clustering the patients presenting signs and symptoms into congestive heart failure, and then further clustering that plus atrial fibrillation and LFT abnormalities 
into a putative diagnosis of primary cardiomyopathy. So she started by assigning relative weights to the features of the case. The heart failure is central to her thinking. She cannot tell yet if the AFib is primary or secondary, but she suspects that LFT abnormalities are an epiphenomenon of the heart failure. This is definitely a recurring theme, I think, when we've analyzed discussions thinking. Half of the diagnosis is figuring out what's signal and what's noise. Kind of, but I think it's more accurate to say they are assigning diagnostic weight. Noise versus signal implies binary extremes. That data is either trash or gold. Here, she's debating the relative significance of the findings, but she's not throwing anything in the wastebasket yet, and it emphasizes that this weighing process is supposed to be fluid. If you get stuck later, you can always tackle the case from a different angle by rethinking what you weighed earlier. Expert clinicians are good at assigning diagnostic weight to findings. Put another way. They understand intuitively which findings of a disease are characteristic for that disease, and which would merely be consistent、uh, with that disease. For example, we all learned in medical school that infectious mononucleosis presents with fever, exudative pharyngitis, splenomegaly, cervical lymphadenopathy, and atypical lymphocytosis. But the thing is, if you see a 20-year-old who presents with acute fever and sore throat, a finding of atypical lymphocytosis on a CBC that is very characteristic of infectious mononucleosis. It's usually present in people who have mono. If it's not there, it argues pretty strongly against mono. In contrast, cervical lymphadenopathy, if that's present, that is consistent with mononucleosis, but it's also seen in, in many other diagnoses that would be on your differential. So, Doctor Constable is treating the hepatic panel elevation as consistent in the picture of heart failure. Right, which makes sense. Mild transaminase elevations are consistent with many diseases that cause heart failure. Anything that causes elevated right-sided pressures. So you see, she doesn't dedicate too much thought to this. But I imagine it would be different if the patient said had marked transaminase elevations in the thousands. Right, that pattern is characteristic of only a. Certain subset of primary liver diseases, or as another example, imagine if the transaminases were elevated to the hundreds as they are, but the alkaline phosphatase was undetectably low. Now that would be very characteristic of a single particular diagnosis, right? Wilson's disease. So experts know which findings tend to be diagnostically discriminatory in a given clinical scenario situation, and anchor. You know their thought process. You know on those characteristic findings. If you're talking about Wilson's this early in the episode, I hope that's not the final answer, right? <laughs> I'm not saying it's not.、Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. So then I thought, you know, thinking a little bit more about things that cause cardiomyopathy, and then there, you know, there was the part about his past alcohol use. So that, you know, it's it you could definitely tie in alcohol. He seemed like he was a pretty heavy drinker in the past.、Um, so you could tie in the alcohol use with, you know, dilated cardiomyopathy and AFib. And then that could maybe tie in the liver. He's got some elevated LFTs as well. But you know, quickly I kind of moved on from that because it doesn't explain his. He's got some sort of B symptoms going on, and he's got fever when he comes in. Also, alcoholic cardiomyopathy gets better with abstinence from alcohol, and so it doesn't really explain why three years after he stopped drinking, he would come in suddenly in heart failure. Okay, so here, Doctor Constable sees alcohol use, and she's trying to tie it in with the illness. She comes up with the hypothesis of alcoholic. Cardiomyopathy, 
and then just as quickly abandons it after she finds that the history and the timeline don't really seem to fit with this. That's an example of backwards hypothesis-driven approach. She comes up with a hypothesis and then looks for evidence to prove or disprove it, like we talked about also in episode one. Right. I do think this is a good opportunity to expand on you know hypothesis-driven clinical reasoning just a little bit. Because if you think about it, it's actually a two-step process. There's hypothesis generation and there's hypothesis testing. I think that makes sense. I mean, step one, come up with the hypothesis. Step two, find or use clinical information to validate it or eliminate it. I have to say, I don't always go through with step two all the time. Let's say someone comes in with acute rhinorrhea, sore throat, cough in the winter. I would say. Well, probably a viral URI. Go home and rest. No need to do further testing. Yeah, though I would argue that you did go through step two. You ordered the test of time, meaning you anticipated the outcome that should be expected with your hypothesis. It's if a if it's a simple viral illness, you expect the symptoms will self-resolve. So if the patient comes back after two weeks with persistent symptoms, then you would know it's time to reevaluate your hypothesis. Right, and if you think of the hypothesis-driven approach as a two-step process, I do think that more often than not, it combines both fast and slow thinking. Okay, that let me see what I think about that statement. I guess it makes sense that hypothesis testing requires a good amount of slow thinking, right? I need to be thinking pathophysiologically what I would expect to find if my hypothesis is true. I have to look for that information in the case. I need to think about what tests to order in order to prove my hypothesis. As for the hypothesis generation step, it's a step where we heavily rely on fast thinking. You know, pattern recognition, representativeness. Sometimes a single cue in the history can trigger a quick association of a specific diagnosis. Let's say the patient has a rose garden in the backyard. Sporotrichosis comes to mind. Yeah, I actually like that you picked that particular example. Not just because we mentioned it in the last episode, but to me, it seems like. I don't have a lot of control over how I come up with a diagnosis or a hypothesis. Sometimes the thoughts just come to me and they get stuck in my head. I can't stop thinking. And again, maybe this is because I'm I have a soft spot for ID, but I cannot stop thinking about sporotrichosis once I hear about rose gardening. Even though obviously there are plenty of gardeners out there that don't have that. Exactly, fast thinking by definition is imprecise, involuntary, even intrusive at times. I definitely have to watch myself and my tendency to anchor a little bit. You know, I get excited about a diagnosis. It's the natural human tendency is to look for more supporting evidence of the thing that is your gut reaction. So, Cindy, I want to be more Vulcan. How do I suppress that kind of intrusive, fast thinking when I'm generating my hypotheses? I don't think we need to do that at all. I mean, remember, fast thinking is an extremely powerful tool. Take pattern recognition when used well by an expert clinician like Dr. Jingjigian in episode one. It can get you to the right diagnosis without a lot of time and effort. Plus, there's nothing wrong with coming up with the wrong hypothesis as long as you can recognize it by correctly performing the hypothesis testing step. I do want to stress that telling people to simply slow down all the time is not the solution in the world of diagnostic reasoning. Instead, we should look for cognitive techniques to counter our own biases. Simply telling people to, you know, not anchor is not a good way to end anchoring. Believe me, Cindy, you don't have to convince me of that. I I feel like. Do you remember the whole、uh, blue and black versus white and gold dress thing from a few years ago? Yeah, I, yeah, I still 
I saw white and gold, and you can't tell me to see blue and black. I just, I tried, believe me, my brain does not work that way. We can't will the desired outcome through sheer mental effort. Hey, if it makes you feel better, my husband Jonathan actually sees blue and gold. Nothing wrong with that, just how his brain is wired. Well, unfortunately, due to time constraint, strategies on how to counter our own biases will have to be a different episode. So then I moved on to the diarrhea, which I think the diarrhea and the fever were sort of the hardest things for me to tie in with everything else. So to me, it sounded like a secretory diarrhea because it's, you know, there's a negative lactoferrin. He's having symptoms all night long. It's not associated with food. The three separate things that I'm investigating are the heart failure, AFib, and the LFT abnormalities are all in one bucket to me. And then there's the diarrhea and then there's the fever. He's a fairly young, otherwise healthy person without much past medical history, except for, you know, pretty heavy alcohol use. I don't think it's likely that he would come in with multiple separate problems. If he was 80, it might be different. So here's her problem representation, a unifying process that accounts for cardiomyopathy, a secretary diarrhea, and a fever of unknown origin. The thing that jumps out the most when you read this case is like there's multiple organ systems affected, and so you start to think about things that can affect, you know, rheumatologic, certain infectious things. So you, your mind is already kind of thinking about certain categories. So that was sort of my initial impression when I first read it. I started thinking about TB because he's from an endemic area. It does occasionally cause a secretory diarrhea. It has a predilection for the ileostecal area. It's not like a super common manifestation, but I felt that it could be tied in with that. So then going back to the cardiac stuff and thinking about cardiac manifestations of TB, the two most common um, would be constrictive pericarditis and a myocarditis or a myopericarditis. And the constrictive pericarditis, it could cause sort of a similar right heart failure picture, atrial enlargement, but it doesn't really mention that there's no really other echo findings consistent with this. You don't see like respiratory variation or abnormal wall, abnormal motion of the interventricular step. And he's clearly got a, a low EF. So the fever is a little bit of a high fever for TB. The thought about just plain old amyloidosis, um, you know, linking the heart failure, proteinuria, diarrhea, doesn't explain the fever. And I thought it was less likely. Could this guy have a malignancy? And these are, you know, you can have a perineoplastic syndrome that presents like a lot of different things. So I would consider that, but we haven't found anything uh, that's suggestive of cancer or metastatic cancer. I mean, so in some ways it could be, you know, the thyroid with the heart failure and the diarrhea. I don't think it's endocrine with the fever, the room category. But we don't have any serologies suggestive of that. So, Dr. Constable started going through systems and considering possible diagnoses within them to test out where this patient fits. She likes some proposals better than others, but acknowledges that none of them explains all three core findings perfectly. The high fever of 103 seems to be a troublemaker. So I feel like I run into this problem quite a bit. When we encounter outlier information in a case, a loose end that we can't explain away, what do we do? The easiest way is to ignore it, come up with an excuse why it's not real. That fever's got to be a rectal claim done in the ED. It's fake. Which is uh, obviously not an approach that's going to sit well with most, uh, most of us. I mean, we really ought to go out of our way, in fact, to ask what doesn't fit, uh, even when we do think that our proposed diagnoses are plausible, right? 
anomalous information implies inadequacy of our original hypothesis. The opposite would be to keep generating hypotheses to force the outlier to fit, like hammering a square peg into a round hole. This is what a computer program does when you input all the heat findings and ask it to spit out diagnosis. It will just keep generating more diagnoses, even when those entities do not fit the original history anymore. Yeah, we. I think we'd all like to be smarter than computers, so knowing when to stop is important too. A useful trick would be to approach the case differently, change directionality. Say, if you have been taking the forward. Data-driven approach, and there's a loose end that you just cannot account for it. It might be time to go backwards and come up with a hypothesis with less data. So actually, Dr. Constable does this later in the interview, though we didn't manage to catch it on tape.、Uh, when she reaches an impasse in explaining the outlier, the fever, she inverts her problem representation. She makes it a patient who is coming in with a fever of unknown origin, and that activates a completely different diagnostic schema. That might be useful. Would be to build a causal model that incorporates both the outlier and everything else. Is there a potential process that can link the outlier to the rest of the case in a cause and effect fashion? And actually, fever is a great example of this, right? Because acute febrile illnesses, you know, viral URIs or whatever, they often trigger decompensation of an underlying rheumatologic or endocrine disease. One last way to potentially look at it is to embrace Hickam's dictum. Maybe it's time to ask: Are there two separate processes going on in here? Right, true, true, and unrelated. Although our discussant implicitly rejects this because,、uh, in her mind, the patient is young and previously healthy. He's begging for a unifying diagnosis. To be honest, when I searched through the literature in the world of diagnostic reasoning, I didn't find a lot of answers to this question. So please let us know if you have a great technique to manage the problem of loose ends or outlier when you solve a case. And with that, I think it's time we discussed what happened in this case. Make sure that you've locked in your diagnoses. So Zhang, you actually took care of this patient, right? Although、uh, to clarify, I actually met this gentleman on his second hospitalization, which occurred a number of months after his first. Okay, so the answer. I、uh, we presented this case to you with a lot of data available, and in retrospect, I wonder if that actually made the case more challenging. Because the truth is, the critical lab test was one that was sent from the emergency department on that initial hospitalization off his first、uh, set of blood work, and that was a TSH, which was undetectably low, and、uh, his thyroxine level came back. It was more than twice the upper limit of normal. We the team. Took care of him at that time. They found no alternative cause to the fever, despite extensive workup. And as soon as that patient was started on methimazole, he had affected a dramatic clinical recovery in just a few days. The fever and tachycardia resolved. The hepatic panel abnormalities normalized.、Uh, the diarrhea disappeared. Yay! Happy ending.、Uh, right. Except. What about the fever? Yeah, Doctor Huang.、Um, how about the fever? I mean, a low-grade fever in thyrotoxicosis makes sense. And it wouldn't surprise me if he presented in full-blown thyroid storm, and then the high fever of 103 would work too. But from the description, we didn't get a sense that the patient was that sick, was he? I mean, um, actually, I have an idea. How about just a plain old viral illness? I mean, he has a fever caused by the viral viral illness. He has a little bit of viral enteritis, 
and a very bad case of viral cardiomyopathy, right? That accounts for all three. And the, vi- um, the fever and everything else just self-resolves because the virus has run its course and has nothing to do with the methimosol. <laughs> you know, I s- distinctly remember at the top of this episode promising our listeners a definite answer. I think diagnostic uncertainty was last episode's theme, wasn't it? Yes, these are all, all very good points. Though I, I should point out, if it is a viral illness, it's, he comes in with a, an illness that's lasting for longer than two weeks at this point. So. But I think you know, what convinces me is, um, as I said, I took care of him the second time he was hospitalized. Uh, so what happened you know, after his first hospitalization, you know, as I said, he did much better. He was seen as an outpatient. His TFTs normalized. Uh, and then at some point, he was lost to follow-up. And uh, th- he was readmitted onto my service several months later uh, with the exact same presentation, fever, abnormal LFTs, rapid atrial fibrillation, congestive heart failure, um, in the setting of having discontinued or uh, having run out of his methimazole. So, Wow. It's like he intentionally stopped taking his medications to prove to you that you were right. This is all his thyroids. Yeah, he, he basically did his own N of one study. And, and maybe he needed to prove it to himself. You know, some patients are, are like that. They need to prove it. I also want to go back to something you said earlier, Cindy. You said that it, uh, it wouldn't surprise you. The fever wouldn't have pr- surprised you so much if he had presented in full-blown thyroid storm, right? It was the fact that he didn't seem that sick that the fever seemed kind of disproportionate. I mean, there is a scoring system uh, for predicting thyroid storm Uh, in patients who have thyrotoxicosis, the Birch and Wartowski point scale. It's a scoring system that considers the severity of end organ damage um, and symptoms. So you get points assigned for fever, for CNS disturbances, for tachycardia, for gastrointestinal and hepatic dysfunction, uh, congestive heart failure, AFib, and whether or not there's a precipitating event. Uh, you, you need a calculator. You can't do this off the top of your head. So a score of greater than 45, it's highly suggestive of thyroid storm. If you crunch the numbers, this patient actually had 75 points. Now, of course, I feel compelled to say, you know, this point scale is a, is a prognostic scale, right? It intentionally uses liberal criteria to avoid false rule outs. Um, but I just want to point out, if, if you accept that he has you know, relatively severe thyrotoxicosis, the high fever actually isn't that surprising. Hmm. Even knowing the diagnosis, it really took a review of the scale to remember that this patient was pretty sick. I guess I was fooled by my own rigid illness script that I think of thyroid storm as an ICU diagnosis. They come in crashing, like the ones I admitted to the ICU late at night in residency. But I ought to think about hyperthyroidism, thyrotoxicosis, and thyroid storm as a continuum of the same disease, but with different severity instead of three distinct categories. Another reason why I might think of him as not a sick patient could be my own bias. As hospitalized patients get sicker and sicker, I'm getting more comfortable with peri-step-down units sitting on the floor. Anyone who's not immediately crushing in front of me is not sick in my opinion. And this is called contrast effect. That's very scary to think about. I could have this patient with impending thyroid storm sitting on my service, and yet I wouldn't have realized it just because he's not as sick as my other patients. Cindy, if this makes you feel better, remember 
I, I said that we had submitted this case to the human DX community uh, for users to solve. So thyrotoxicosis was not high uh, on the collective differential. It, it ranked 10th, and that was behind some fairly esoteric diagnoses like carcinoid syndrome and Chagas. Folks ended up submitting a total of 35 uh, distinct diagnoses. And so I have been thinking about why it would be so challenging to recognize thyrotoxicosis in this case. I already admit, you know, part of it might have been the artificiality of having so much data. But I also think that, uh, you know, because, you know, thyrotoxicosis, it involves so many different organs and there's a high variability in, in the signs and the symptoms, at least to me, I think it highlights how a, a single rigid illness script can be inadequate um, to, to cover a, a multi-system uh, a disease like, a, like thyrotoxicosis or a, a, another endocrinopathy. Right. So when I learned it in med school, it's all about, you know, the weight loss, the heat intolerance, the anxiety, the tremor. But not every patient with hyperthyroidism comes in with that. I actually found this case report from 1988, where a woman with AFib without RVR, fever 102, was hospitalized for six weeks as a fever of unknown origin workup and ended up having hyperthyroidism. I mean, um, if a patient comes in with a fever 101 and jaundice today as the two most prominent findings, I wouldn't think of hyperthyroidism until after the third ERCP. Right. And, you know, I practice at Bellevue, a different hospital, and uh, you know, I have admitted patients with thyrotoxicosis that had very little symptom overlap with the patient that you just described, uh, especially elderly folks. I remember taking care of a couple of people who came in with a clinical picture of rapidly progressive dementia characterized by apathy and psychosis, but certainly not fever, you know, atrial fibrillation or, uh, or tachycardia. One more element that makes this case harder is the forum we're using to discuss this case. I mean, I bet in real life a lot of people will throw in the TFTs in the workup without much hesitation, even when it's not ranked high on their differential. We're just primed to think in a fashion suitable to an academic conference if we're talking about a case on human DX or on hoop beats. I mean, when we, in, when we look at the CPC case, we usually think the end diagnosis would be something sexy, something that there are only 300 cases since the 1980s. There's absolutely something medical. Yes. If we're talking about it, you think it's either vasculitis or TB because we love to talk about that. Honestly, I mean, that's... I'm going to blame uh, chief residents across the world for that one, right? I, I personally would love to, he to hear and see more CPCs uh, where the diagnosis ends up being hyperthyroidism, right? Compared to intravascular B-cell lymphoma. <laughs> it's more common. It's more treatable. Happier ending. Think about uh, the diagnosis we've had on hoofbeat so far. Pancreatitis, endocarditis, C. diff, hyperthyroidism, Sjogren's. Uh, granted, it was extra granular Sjogren's, but they're all very sexy. So, shall we summarize what we touched on working through this case and hearing from Dr. Constable? Yes. So, first off, we talked about the difference between findings that are characteristic of a disease and findings that are merely consistent with a disease. And so, expert clinicians, they build their illness scripts on characteristic findings, which allows them to recognize them easily in a case and swiftly narrow the differential diagnosis. 
We also talked about how hypothesis-driven reasoning often involves utilization of both fast and slow thinking. The combination can set you up for cognitive biases at the transition point. We touched on what to do when faced with an outlier, a data point that doesn't fit. Be creative. Well, we should look for a bigger answer or a second answer, or instead of treating it as the outlier, treat it as your anchor. But don't ignore it, and just as importantly, don't fixate on it. We got a reminder from this case that certain disease entities that affect multiple organ systems, like hyperthyroidism, can have highly variable presentations. A rigid illness script only does your disservice here. I think, Cindy, that should do it for this week, right? Uh, we should thank Drs. Catherine Constable and uh, Marty Freed for weighing in on this episode. And special thanks to our audio editor for this episode, Richard Chen. As always, an honorable mention to our fellow podcaster, Dr. Stephen Liu, who didn't get the diagnosis this week, but he did just make genius level on the New York Times spelling bee. So congratulations, Steve. Do you have comments about this case, discussion, or commentary? We would love to hear your thoughts on this month's episode or ideas for future episodes. Send us an email at coreimpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at coreimpodcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions, nor should they be construed as medical advice. Please reason forward responsibly. Thank you for joining us with Core IM. I'm John Huang. And I'm Cindy Fan. Thank you again and see you next time.